You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, everybody, for our 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time, where we're going to get into some I some good, good old Bible verses here. I know. Kind of an interesting set of readings that we have this weekend, for sure. Yes, so. yes it is. Indeed. Yes, it is. Indeed. Let's jump into it. Second Kings chapter four. Annie, give us our text here. Yes. The first reading, as Father was saying, is coming from Second Kings chapter four, verses eight through 11, and then verses 14 through 16. The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 89. The gospel, Matthew chapter 10 verses 37 through 42 and the epistle is father hezekiah's favorite i think or i hear you i hear you reference it a lot romans anyway. chapter six romans baby. chapter six verses three and four and then verses eight through if 11. you get romans six right the whole thing opens up you know yeah. And not only that, the whole Protestant house of cards comes tumbling down. So my dear brothers and sisters of the Protestant persuasion that are participating in our Sunday gospel reflections, um, and which we know you're out there. Yep. Fasten uh, your Bible study seatbelt. <laughs> you might not want to listen to this one. This is this Bible study today is not going to be very friendly to Martin Luther's causes, you know. Yeah. But if you're interested in the truth and the fullness of apostolic Christianity, if you're tired of protesting and want to restore the Catholic communion, then my brothers and sisters, this is the Bible study for you. Let's yeah. look at this. Come on, Annie. Fasten your biblical study seat. That's right. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Second Kings chapter four, chapter four, starting in verse eight. All right. <clears throat> One day, Elisha came to Shunem, where there was a woman of influence who urged him to dine with her. Afterward, whenever he passed by, he used to stop there to dine. So she said to her husband, I know that Elisha is a holy man of God. Since he visits us often, let us arrange a little room on the roof and furnish it for him with a bed, table, chair, and lamp so that when he comes to us, he can stay there. Sometime later, Elisha arrived and stayed in the room overnight. Later, Elisha asks, can something be done for her? His servant, Gehazi, answered, yes, she has no son, and her husband is getting on in years. 
Alicia said, call her. When the woman had been called and stood at the door, Alicia promised, this time next year, you will be fondling a baby son. And that's mm-hmm. the end of the reading. Yeah. Okay, I got to like... know before we get to anything else. Yes or no. Does she get this baby son? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. he's a prophet of God. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always say the prophet isn't the predictor of the future. No, that's true. Now one. that actually, no, this, this is a great example of this. That the prophet reveals God to the people. And, and this happens in the story of, of Alicia in in spades and but all tied back to Romans chapter six we gotta tell you how so not only in word but also maybe more importantly in deed right that the prophet is is a revelation and makes present God among his people and oftentimes that comes out in words when the people are not living the way they should Right. Then they sound more like Father Hezekiah with his boys. <laughs> of course, my daughters are perfect, but the boys sometimes <laughs> need a little correction. So, um, but here we are. And, uh, but yes, in, in verse 17, chapter four, verse 17, but the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring as, as Alicia had said to her now, that's not the end of the story because verse 18 and following to verse 20, you'll see what happens to this boy. Verse 20. When he had lifted him up and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. So God giveth and God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. I think I should say the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed <laughs> Nevertheless. Okay, you got the idea. But that's not the end of the story either, because Alicia then visits this family and this woman and this dead son. In verse 34, and uh, the child is raised from the dead. You see that? He became warm. And then he opens his eyes in verse 35. Yes, there we have it. So this is a beautiful story of God visiting his people in their barrenness and bringing life through the prophet, but also bringing life through death, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's multiple wrinkles here in, in the stories of Alicia, and the story of Alicia by itself, it, itself is, is fantastic. But but that's the basic answer. Yes, they did receive a child. I'm sure okay, you have other so questions. So speaking of Alicia and the great things about him, what do we need to know about him? Well, the most important thing to know about Alicia is he, he was bald. <laughs> No, it is my favorite story, though. So I'm not Old going to skip head. this opportunity. Right. <laughs> so, no, we, the most important thing to know about Elisha is that he is a prophet and disciple of the great prophet Elijah, who bestows upon Elisha a double portion of his spirit, crossing the Jordan River. And by the way, those that have been to the Holy Land with me at the very same place that Jesus was baptized. Okay. Cool. So you can imagine the location. Of course, the Jordan River was much larger then because the Zionists weren't sucking all the water out of it to water their date trees and banana trees in the Jordan Valley. But that is for another story and another time. Here we are, 2 Kings chapter um, 2, 
chapter 2, verse 11, uh, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, I pray you, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. And he said to him, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went on and talked, we held a chariot of fire. Horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces and he took out the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the banks of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and the other, and Elisha went over. So he crosses, he, he, he does a Moses, right? Yeah. Wow. He pulls a Moses or a Joshua, because the same thing happens with the Ark of the Covenant. This is, okay. Can you guys give me a little Father Hezekiah's side note? Please. Okay. So when the Ark of the Covenant goes and 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 enters into the Jordan, okay, in the book of Joshua chapter, I'm turning there with me. Go ahead and open your Bibles. Why not? Joshua, Joshua chapter 3, verse 11. You with me? Chapter three, verse eleven. Joshua three eleven. Yep, I'm there. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and all the earth is to pass over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, each tribe of men, and when the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest on the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be stopped from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people uh da, 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 verse 16 the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap far off at adam the city and and those flowing down toward the sea and the salt sea were wholly cut off and the people passed over the opposite. okay so my point is this this is super cool when the ark of the covenant the things containing god go to the jordan the jordan out of reverence for the presence of the lord worships Wow. Yeah. And some translations say flowed backwards to the city of Adam. Okay. That the waters actually held back and then flowed backwards. Now, why is this cool? Because the same thing happens when the prophet of God goes to the Jordan River, right? Yeah. So the fathers of the church, um, writing about the baptism of the Lord, note this fact and say, if at the stone tablets, Contained in the ark, the Jordan River held back out of reverence for the presence of God. How much more so must it have happened when Jesus entered the Jordan? And so the poetic texts that are chanted in the Byzantine tradition on the Feast of Theophany, the baptism of the Lord, say the waters flowed back. The waters flowed back. Jordan, you flowed backwards at the presence of God. Wow. Saying that this is what happened when Jesus and I say it's not in the Bible. This is the beauty of our of our tradition, of piety of, of, of yeah. God's people, knowing the biblical text of the Old Testament can give further detail 
to what the gospel reveals to us. Yeah, That's and so cool. I, I got one more thing to add, which is so cool. Every year, the feast of the baptism of the Lord, when the patriarch of Jerusalem goes to the Jordan River to bless it, it starts flowing backwards. It does I've not. I've seen it myself. You can look it up on YouTube. Now, it doesn't part and float like, right? But the ripples of the water begin flowing in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's awesome. There's stuff in the Holy Land that's happened. Mount Tabor and the Feast of, 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 of uh, the um, Transfiguration. A cloud descends upon the mountain every year that night, just like it did. So, yes, this happens. Wow. It's very beautiful. And there's my little side note. It has nothing really to do with our Bible study today. Annie, back to you. But that's so cool. It's cool. Okay. Where is this taking place? Where is Shunem? Okay. Shunem is in the area of what it would have been Israel. So we have the divided kingdom at this time. Go back in your Bibles. What passage are we at? Second Kings chapter four. Yep. Look at chapter three, verse one. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the, the son of, of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria. So you're in se- beginning of Second Kings. The division of the kingdom has already taken place, right? Mm-hmm. Back in chapter, right here, chapter 12. Of course, it's chapter 11 and 12, right? That's the division where the northern ten tribes break from Judah. And uh, and now you have the northern ten tribes. Where, and uh, and and. And uh, Alicia is going to go, and he's he's traveling here at this time in the area of the northern ten tribes, in the or area of Samaria. He's going to encounter both the king of Judah and the king of Israel because at this point in chapter three, they actually get back together, and they start hanging out together and doing battles together, and they both meet Elijah together in in chapter three, verse twelve, and so. But that's not your question. Your question is, where is he? Well, he's in a very famous area. It's the area of the Jezreel Valley. For those who have been to the Holy Land with me, we looked at the Jezreel Valley from two locations, the point uh, Mount Precipice at Nazareth and also Mount Tabor, because both these mountains overlook the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, you can see here, this is... This is the Holy Land. That's the Sea of Galilee. Yes, the Jezreel Valley, Mount Tabor, Nazareth, right there. Okay, now why is this important? Why is this, you know, it's not tremendously important for our story in particular, but the Jezreel Valley is extremely important for salvation history. Um, This is where all of the great armies of the world marched. The Egyptians marched through there. The Persians marched through there. The Greeks marched through there. The Romans marched through there. So it's a great place of battle. Yeah. One of the great battles of salvation history that took place in this, in this uh, valley is found in the book of Judges. And I'm just going to give you the reference. Judges chapter five, chapter four. Yeah. Judges chapter four, when Sisera is routed and remember Jael drives the tent peg through his temple Mm -hmm. happens right here. So that's where he's at for, you know, it's kind of, yes, it's an important place, but it's not particularly important to the story. I don't think, but well, yeah, I was just curious more or less, but I guess my question is here. I mean, this is a, a nice story. They leave us hanging 
but you know, mm-hmm. you get the sense that the, she must be getting the sun or whatever, but I mean, what is, what's the message here? Why is, why are we hearing this in liturgy? Well, I would say there's, there's a couple things as we're going, moving forward. There's two points and there's, there's the reception of the prophet by this woman, mm-hmm. but there's also the life of the prophet, which is the greater context of this thing, right? So he comes and life comes with him. Yes. This woman becomes pregnant, uh, bears a son, and later on in the story is raised from the dead. And so, so obviously the prophet is, is a life bearing figure here in the story. And, and this woman is also an icon of the Christian really, who receives those sent to her from God. And I think it's very important. These verses that we skip in the lectionary, I don't think help us out because if you look at verse 12, we'll go from verse 11 to 14. This is second Kings chapter four, verse 11. On the day he came there and turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important because the part that we actually read in the lectionary focuses on or, or maybe highlights for us that she was a woman of influence. But that's not the point of the story, unless you can make the application that influence doesn't necessarily give you life because she was barren, right? So money's not going to answer your problems. She is an example, maybe because she's a woman of influence, that it's not enough. But that she's a woman of faith is she sees the holy man receives him and is troubled to provide a place for him so that he might come and dwell among them and by that fact god comes and dwells among them and gives them life you know i think that this is where we can start to be we can begin at least to touch upon some themes are going to come up later in our lectionary cycle our lectionary readings for the sunday and that is the, the reality of participation in divine life. And so I just gave you a very quick little apologetic catechesis regarding Luther's theology. And that is that for Luther, sanctification, justification, we can't really talk about sanctification with Luther, but we can talk about justification, how a person is justified, how he's made right before God. Uh, Dr. William Marshner used to say he was a he was in a way of in theology of talk tackling like really heady topics and making them understandable and i'm not that smart so it was really helpful to me as a theology student he'd say he says you want to understand luther's theology of of justification is justification is god's smiley face on man in other words the reality remains true in god not in us right and you that 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 customary thing that luther said whether he said it or not he says, man is dung covered in snow. In other oh, words, right, we right. are decayed, and yet God's grace covers us. Yeah? And that's the same thing that Marshner is getting at. He's saying, it's not a reality. Our sanctification is not a reality that takes place in us. In other words, God's grace doesn't come to dwell within me. It remains exterior to me. It's a decision God makes about me 
regardless of the fact that I am who I am. It's kind of like a murderer being in a courtroom being declared innocent. The murderer still remains a murderer. And yet he's been declared free. For Luther, this is the thing. Why? Well, because Luther struggled with scrupulosity and Luther would go to confession many, many times a day. And he comes out and he says, look, I'm still a sinner. I'm still falling into sin. He was just, he couldn't get out of his head. And therefore, baptism and confession must not do for me what the church says it does. Because look, I'm still fallen. I'm still struggling. I'm still whatever. And therefore, I have to reinvent an idea of how I'm saved. Okay. And, and he could, so he, he couldn't deal with God's love being what Catholics believe it is, which is transformative of the person. Um, but here we have an apologetic against Luther in the prophet Elisha, because he comes and he's actually communicating God's grace in a way that is interior. He's bringing people back to life. Yeah. Yes. Not only is he bringing people back to life, turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 13, because eventually Elisha dies. And this is one of my favorite Bible passages, chapter 13, verse 20. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of that year, of the year. And as a man was being buried, lo, a marauding band was seen. And the man was cast into the grave of Elisha. As soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. And not only does the holy man have the ability to communicate the life of God. Yes, our participation is so real. But the dead bones of a dead man are able to bring people back to life. Hello, Catholics and relics. Yes. Yeah. So far from the medieval mumbo jumbo of Catholicism, biblical Christianity reverences the dead bones of holy people because even the dead bones participate in the living God. Yes. We'll talk more about that, in, especially in the epistle we're going to talk about today. But Alicia then stands as this icon of man transformed. And we talked about this last week. We are the, we are the tabernacles of the living God when we go out into the world. And look at this. Yes. Should we expect anything less for one who has been baptized into Christ Jesus? No. So, Annie, you said, what, what, what's this all for? What's the wait, purpose? Wait, wait. Has Alicia been baptized into Christ Jesus? Ooh. I, I, yeah. Well, okay. The fathers of the church say that Elijah was baptized when he crossed the Jordan River, that he was baptized because he not only died to his old self, leaving behind, not only repenting for himself, but all of God's people who had fallen into sin at that time. Because remember, during this time, things are not good in Israel or in Judah. They're worshiping mm -hmm. false gods. They're right. doing all this stuff, okay? And you can read more about that in uh, 2 Kings chapter 3 um, and chapter 2 and so forth. Yeah, chapter 3. But he leaves behind him the old, his old life, takes on the life of God. Yes? What is baptism? What happens when we are baptized? Now, you have to, people are going to say, Father Hezekiah is a heretic. 
Elisha was was not and not had the fullness of Christian revelation. Yeah. Well, we only need to turn to First Corinthians chapter. First Corinthians chapter ten. Verse one, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses. Yes. Mm-hmm. When Elijah prays the double portion of Elisha, of, uh, sorry, when Elisha prays for a double portion of Elijah's spirit and receives this double portion, he then goes and starts resurrecting people from the dead <laughs> because he has been plunged into the word baptized baptizing means to be plunged in he's been plunged into the life of god and if he hadn't been plunged in the life of god he wouldn't be given out the resurrection yes that's fair did i talk did i talk about alicia being bald you did did i skip that part well you didn't show the story but you told it's us it's my favorite story before we leave we have yeah, to okay, go let's there. i was okay let's do it all right so here we are in chapter 2, verse 23, just after he receives the double portion of the Spirit. 2 Kings chapter 2? Chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. Okay. Verse 23. Are you with me? I'm here. This is a little comedy, comedy relief with Father Hezekiah. Okay. <laughs> he went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you baldy. Go up, bald head. <laughs> And he turned around. When he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. And from there, he went on to Mount Carmel. And thence he returned to Samaria. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. You got to love the scriptures. Yeah. So That's, there you have it. Wow. That's Alicia, the prophet. Nice. By the way, I have to share with you guys this beautiful icon you have in the church. In my church of, yes, the double oh, portion cool. of the spirit being given to, there he is. He looks Elisha. like he's yanking the cloak down from Elijah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. Nice, oh, huh? That's so cool. That beautiful. Yeah. Very neat. Very neat. Well, let's look at the responsorial psalm just quickly before we get to the gospel here. I was I was trying to see, you know, we always talk about how the, the psalm kind of serves as a bridge between the old and the new testament and i think what you were saying about being baptized into the lord it says you know blessed blessed the people who know the joyful shout in the light of your countenance O lord they Mm. walk like walking in the presence of the lord Mm. yeah you know it's a matter of whether you realize what took place in you to you on the day of your baptism. And I think many Christians today don't really understand this or we're, or we're not aware of it. Um, you know, we have all these spiritualities going around in the church, right? Uh, this spirituality, you know, Franciscan spirituality or that spirituality or that spiritual. Baptismal spirituality is the spirituality of the Christian. Yeah. And I think sometimes we need to get back to this foundational spirituality and an awareness of this reality in our life can i give you a quote from a a saint before we please move on yeah listen to this saint caesarius of arles we have heard that after this blessed elisha passed by shunem where a certain woman received him and said to her husband i perceive that this man is a god as a man of god 
Let us make him a chamber and put a bed in it for him and a table and a stool and a candlestick that when he comes, he may abide here. Now the woman was sterile, but at the prayer of Elisha, she bore a son. So too the church, this is where the fathers of the church are amazing, beautiful exegesis. Just like this. So too the church was sterile before the coming of Christ. But just as that other bore a son at the prayer of Elisha, so the church bore the Christian people when Christ came to it. Wow. However, the son of that woman died during the absence of Elisha. Thus also the church's son, that is the Gentiles, died through sin before Christ's advent. When Elisha came down from the mountain, the widow's son was revived. And when Christ came down from heaven, the church's son or the Gentiles were restored to life. Wow. So Elisha is an icon of Christ. The whole story of Elisha is an icon, an image of the church itself. This is why we got to read the Old Testament. Yeah. It's beautiful. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, let's let's move on to the gospel. You think, yep. Father? Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. And we are starting in verse 37 this week. Let me know when you're ready. Okay. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. I got it. Go ahead. All right, here we go. Jesus said to his apostles, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives only a cup of cold water to one of these little ones to drink, because the little one is a disciple, amen, I say to you, he will surely not lose his reward. All right, so. Have a nice said, day, Mother, yeah. Mother's Day, Father's Day. <laughs> yeah, right. And now it's Jesus's day. I know, man. Okay, well, let's. Um, well, let's get our bearings once again. Yeah. We've spent a couple of weeks now in Matthew chapter 10, Father. Uh, yes, we skipped yeah. over a part. I was looking ahead in the in the in my Bible. We skipped over the part where Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And you know, verse 34. Pit, yeah, I'm gonna pit like, you know, various family members against each other, kind of thing. But I'm just wondering, like, in terms of, of the context in which all of this is being said, can you remind us why he is saying all of this right now? Right. Well, so, so remember that the apostles are being sent out now, and they're having to leave, in some sense, house and home. They're having to prioritize the mission of Christ. And probably there is some, you know challenge going on among the apostles who again there's story behind the story that's taking place and certainly i mean the wives of the apostles the parents that rely upon them for their livelihood i mean what about what about john james and john 
their father Zebedee and his fishing business, you know? Mm -hmm. So certainly this ties into all of that in chapter 10, at the beginning of chapter 10, they're being sent out. So this is, this is Jesus's kind of final instruction as they're going to go out and become missionaries, become apostles about what they're, what they're about to face. And, And many people might look at these first few verses and say, well, gee whiz, Lord. I mean, that doesn't fit in with the felt banner stuff that I'm all into. <laughs> and like the whole idea of like, you know, accepting everybody for who they are and who they want to be. You're yeah. telling them that they have to be willing to change their lives for you. But that doesn't fit into the rainbow flags I see flying around. And um, and so this gospel passage is rather at first glance offensive but we're going to unpack and understand why jesus says what he says i'm gonna go back to verse 34 do not think that i have come to bring peace on her i have not come to bring peace but a sword for i have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes will be those of his own household he who loves father mother more than me is not worthy of me okay so there's 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 two things, both the apostles themselves, but also they're going to go out and start kind of preaching, and all of a sudden, there's going to be a little breaking apart of going on, what's going on. I mean, this happened, right? Look at Saint Barbara, for example. Saint Barbara's oh own father yeah. killed her for becoming a Christian. It wasn't uncommon in the early church for this to happen. It still happens today, where certain members of certain families decide that. You got to give your life for Christ and other members of that family say, well, he's flipped out. And besides that, we know when he was a sinner, we remember him as a young man and he was a sinner. Well, good. The news is I'm still a sinner, you know, but it's misunderstood. Right. And that's what Jesus is warning about. He's giving basic fundamental truths about what it means to be a Christian. What's going to happen. Right. It's not always going to go well. We talked about that last week. Yeah. And there's going to be division. So, look, I have a, a quotation from you from St. John Chrysostom that I think is important. And um, let me give that to you right now. He says, Chrysostom says, what sort of peace is it that Jesus brings? And what kind of peace is it that the angels sing? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. If Jesus did not come to bring peace, then why did all the prophets publish peace as good news? Because... This more than anything else is peace. When the disease is removed, when the cancer is cut away with the sword. I'll give you one other quotation and then I'm going to make a couple of comments. St. Apollinarius, second century martyr. He says, the unbeliever's disagreement with the believer will produce a distinction. Since the unbelievers think that peacemaking is is their proper duty, They say, quote, do not believe that it is best in all circumstances to be saved. For you owe it as a duty to be at peace with all. Hmm. But there are some that preparing for battle again, that are preparing for battle against our peace. And you should not let their false peace rule. For the only true concord. The only true peace is to be united with God. This above all is peace. Okay. So when Jesus begins 
talking about this love of father, love of mother, I want to ask you, does he, is he breaking the commandments, which say you should honor your father and your mother? By no means. So let's back off of that kind of stupidity and begin to understand what Jesus is saying. For he who loves father and mother more than me. Now, why does he say this? Because this still sounds offensive. Because the only true peace is the unity of God. The only true love is the love of God. Because God is love. Yes? It's the only true love. So when I have love, which is not rooted in God first, my love is a false love. And it will not bring salvation to me or to those I supposedly love. I can only love my father and my mother if I first love God and begin to live in his image and after his likeness, which is love itself. There is no unity apart from the one who is one. Yes, there is no peace apart from the one who is in peace between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And anything other than that is a false peace and is rooted in and born of the devil himself. And it is not unity. It is not peace. It is not love, but it is the corruption of those realities. We must love and come into communion with the one who is love if we seek to love others that God has placed in our life. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, it seems like, no, not even seems like, it would be ideal that all of us be united in Christ, <laughs> like that there wasn't is, even an opportunity for all of this to be um, a battle, so to speak. This is the key. And I want to, uh, we can note a few things then about this gospel passage, which are fundamental regarding hospitality, which is the second part of this, this, this yeah. passage, right? Notice there's a, rep- a repeated word, right, in this gospel passage. Whoever receives a prophet because. Yeah. Whoever receives a righteous man because. The one, whoever gives a cup of water to one of these little ones to drink because. And the because is always rooted in the same reality because they are in communion with God. And this is, this is, I think, important to all of our wonderful social work that the church does. When we look out on the streets of our cities and the homeless and the drug addicts and the this and the that, all that, sometimes we lose sight of the need for the Christian to take care of the Christian community first. Because that my love for the one on the street must always be because. Yes, I'm not saying it's not good to go out and take care of the homeless, the drug addicts, and so forth. It is. But it's always because they are in the image and likeness of God, because I want them to be saved. This is the only reason. Because of my love for God who has made them. Yes. And there we come back to this verse. Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives the apostle, receives me. This is the foundation of authentic human love and sacrifice. Authentic human service. Authentic Christian service, I should say. 
because when I greet another, I greet Christ himself who is dwelling within. This Shunammite woman was blessed because she received not Elias, Elijah, or, or Elisha, but because she received God in the man. Yeah? And this is a transformative way of beginning to see my life, my interactions with my coworkers, my interactions with those in my church, which ought to be first and foremost, because they are living tabernacles of the living God. And not just your priest, by the way. But we serve one another in Christ because we see Christ in them. Do you want Jesus to come to your home? I'm serious about this. If you had a choice right now, of all the people you could invite to dinner tonight, who would it be? Choose anyone. It's going to be Jesus, right? Because you have now endured this, this, this long-winded Bible study for almost an hour, okay? Which means you're really into Jesus. If you have to choose anybody, it's going to be Jesus. And maybe this Sunday, it might also be Alicia, because that'd be really cool, right? That would be really cool. That'd be really yeah. cool. Do you realize that you have that opportunity? People ask me all the time, Father, why do you serve liturgy for four hours on Sunday? Because our liturgy is rather long, three hours, whatever. And then after church, invite as many people to your home as you possibly can from church. Because I want Jesus to come to my house. Simple as that. We have to begin to live a sense of Christian family again, Christian hospitality again, so that God can come and dwell within us. And within our homes, yeah? Mm-hmm. And Annie, you might have other questions about that. We have to get the epistle because that's the center and heart of this whole business. Yeah, well, let's get there. Can we go? Okay, yeah. great. I want to spend some time here. So let's do it. Romans chapter six, and we are reading verses three and four and then eight through 11. Okay. And then we could go back if you want to the gospel, but we got to get this thing in pace because it, it, it's the transformative text that tells yep. you everything. Okay. Absolutely. All right, Let's here go. we go. Romans chapter six, starting with verse three. Three, yeah. Brothers and sisters, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. If then we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ raised from the dead dies no more. Death no longer has power over him. As to his death, he died to sin once and for all. As to his life, he lives for God. Consequently, you too must think of yourselves as dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. So our first, our first you know, thing here is my hobby horse, which is the word into. Yes. What, what happened when you were baptized, right? What happened to you when you were baptized? And most people will respond. Most Catholics respond, original sin is washed away. Or maybe if you're a Lutheran, uh, you'll say nothing happens when I was baptized. Yeah, it was just a public declaration. But actually the Bible 
The Bible doesn't say either of those things. Now, I'm not saying that original sin is not washed away when you're baptized. Please don't go report me to the bishop and say I'm a heretic. No, but, but, but we need to regain our biblical language. Because what happens is we oftentimes we build our theological house, which may be very well built. But it's not built upon a biblical foundation, or at least we forget our biblical foundation. And then... All our answers, all our house, all the little trim work has all been done. And you know the answer to your catechism question, but you haven't gotten back to the foundation. The Jehovah's Witness comes, knocks on your door, and your whole house comes falling down. I don't want that for you. What happens when we're baptized? Well, the Bible does tell us what happens when we're baptized. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus himself talks about this in another way in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, when he talks to Nicodemus and he says, um, uh, Nicodemus, verse chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, the word there in Greek is anothen, which can have two different meanings. It can, be, it can mean again, or it can mean from above in Greek. So Jesus is talking about the above, but Nicodemus is thinking on the human level and he can't figure it out. So he says, he's, he, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now to see something is a form of knowledge. Okay, and watch, like I can see my front door, I can close my eyes, I've been made one with it. Knowledge is a union of the knower and the known. To see the kingdom of God is to, is to come into communion with the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb? And he says, Jesus says, you idiot. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, now he repeats his words, but he explains himself a different way so that Nicodemus can get it. Truly, truly, I say to you, that unless one is born of water and the spirit. So to be born anothen, to be born anew, means to be born of water and the spirit. And of course, the context in the gospel of John is right here, is Jesus was just baptized, right? When we had water and we had the spirit. Okay, so he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So to see the kingdom of God is to enter the kingdom of God. You see that? To be born anothen, to be born anew, is to be born of water and the spirit. To see the kingdom of God is to enter the kingdom of God. These two things come together, yes? So we are baptized, when you are baptized, you are baptized into the kingdom of God, you're baptized into Jesus. Why are these two things true? Because the kingdom of God is the communion of the Holy Trinity. So if you are in the son of God, if you are in the word of God, you are in communion with the father and the Holy Spirit. You're standing in the shoes of the son. You have been baptized as St. Paul says in Romans six, not like Christ Jesus, but into Christ Jesus. You know, why were you baptized? Because Jesus was baptized. I had to do things like Jesus was. No, 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 no. You were baptized so that you might be plunged into him. And having been plunged into him, what is true about God becomes true about us. Yes? We are baptized. Traditionally, the church baptizes by immersion, by placing the person underneath the water three times to more perfectly show forth the reality of what St. Paul is talking about here. We are buried in baptism. What happens when you're baptized? You're, you're, you're put to death. That's what happens when you're baptized. Your old self is put to death. And then, having been joined by faith in the death of Christ Jesus, then he who is risen from the dead 
gives you the possibility of a newness of life. Yes? No one is going to rise from the dead who has not first died with Christ. We believe that we die with Christ in baptism and have been given the new life of the resurrection. Yes? So that we can say with St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Go back to the gospel. Look at this. I'm going to go back to the gospel passage. Whoever finds his life, right, who's ever seeking to hold on to the life I have, it's going to die. But he who gives his life away, who's the one who gives his life away? It's Jesus. He will find what, what we are made for. He will come alive in this action because this is the way God lives. He who receives me receives the one who sent me and then goes on to talk about all these people being received like Elisha was received who received God himself when the tabernacle of God came yeah so this is maybe my long-winded way but of, of one of my favorite passages in the entire bible to make sure that you realize who you are as a baptized Christian. When Jesus sent the apostles out, he just didn't send guys out who he had given some training to in Matthew chapter 5 through 10. He sent out men who had given their life to God and therefore had been transformed into the presence of God himself. Hmm. Yes. And, and then we can look at that in two ways in the reception of, of others, but also in our own going out into the world to realize who we are and regain our baptismal spirituality. We are ones who are the living God present on this earth. Jesus says, I will remain with you always. And how does he remain with us always? in you and me. And you might say, well, I wish he had just remained with us always. No, actually, the incarnation was only the beginning of God's plan because God is love and love is the giving of our life to the beloved. The, the revelation of the Christian is the fullness of the revelation of the incarnation, that what God began in the incarnation is and it comes to its fruition. In you and me, we are the revelation of the glory of God. That's what St. Irenaeus says. The glory of God is man fully alive. Because man fully alive is man living, having God's life in him, being becoming a participant in the divine nature, a partaker of the divine nature, which is the revelation of God who is love, God who is life-giving. Does that make sense? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Okay. I'll get off my I want to ask about, um, and correct me if I'm, you know, if I'm looking at this in the wrong way, but like, I was really struck by the fact that he says, you know, who, whoever receives a prophet because he is a prophet, whoever receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, like the reason that you're receiving them, it's not just because I'm, I'm showing hospitality because I'm a nice person. I'm showing hospitality because you are a righteous person. And I want, yeah, this is, this is, this is my point. Yeah. Actually, if you want to do yourself a favor, go read a document from Cardinal Ratzinger, Dominus Jesus. Okay, go and do yourself a favor and read this document on the evangelical mission of the church and why it is necessary that we spread the gospel 
and bring about the conversion of souls. And the whole modern nonsense that we shouldn't be going out and proselytizing and evangelizing and converting people to Christianity is of the devil. Absolutely. 100%. We don't leave people in their state. We don't take care of people's food needs and financial needs so that we can be nice. Jesus didn't come to be nice. Jesus came to confront sin and destroy it. And we are his missionaries to go out into the world. And again, I'm not saying that our food banks and our, uh, and our work, our social work of the church isn't important, but it is only important for one reason, so that we give these people an opportunity to be saved. This is why I love the missionaries of charity, Mother Teresa's. Because they, they don't just feed people, they do. They serve the most destitute, constantly, constantly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, constantly bringing people to baptism. That's their primary goal. That is their only goal. And everything else is a tool of that. Yeah. And it must be regained within the church. We cannot leave people where they are if we truly love them. We do no injustice to anyone. We bring Christ to them. Now, I have a quotation that I have to do. Peter's well, can I ask one more thing, though? Yeah. Like, I can't be a missionary of charity, but I can support the missionaries of charity. So can I then, in, in supporting the missionaries of charity, receive a reward? You know well, what I mean? The reward. Like, so you're asking a question of participation, which, which, yeah, goes, which goes back. This, you're asking the question of participation, which goes back to the entire thing regarding baptism. Because not only is Jesus sharing his life with us, but Alicia's dead bones are sharing God's life with this other guy, right? right. You and I, part are, we live a life of participation, a life of communion. If, if I, if I, First ah, Corinthians chapter 10 is right there. Yeah. Turn back there. And we got to finish because we're going to get out of overtime here, but we got to, we got to get this first Corinthians chapter 10, first Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, for just as the body is one and as many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. All were made to drink of the one spirit. The body does not consist of, many, of, of, of one member, but of many. One's a hand, one's an eye, one's a foot. Yes? Yeah. With the, when the hand's doing what the hand does, it benefits the rest of the body. Yes? Yeah. We participate truly in one another's life. I participate in your life. I hope for the better. Through, that's why we're doing these Sunday gospel reflections. There's a real participation. Yes, I, I love the mission of charity. And I, I used to go and do more teaching for them I, um, in Washington, D.C. And we did a retreat for them in Germany. I really loved their work. And I did so because I knew that my work with them allowed me to participate in a work that I wasn't able to do. And that is to go out on the streets of Calcutta and Mexico City and take up the, the most destitute. 
and bring them to the waters of baptism through my love for them. I wanted to love them, but I wasn't in a state in my life where I was able to do that and that they were given that part in the body. And I really participated in it. Yes. I got to go to this quotation that I have that I've held on to for some years from Pope Benedict. I just love Pope Benedict. You know, the guy was, you can quote everything he ever said. Fantastic. Absolutely. Okay. Today, it is up to you, brothers and sisters, to offer the risen Christ to your fellow citizens. Someone may object. Why not leave them in peace? There's my peace again. They have their truths and we ours. But if we are convinced and have come to experience that without Christ, life lacks something. That something real, indeed the most real thing of all is missing. We must also be convinced that we do no injustice to anyone if we present Christ to them. Indeed, we must do this. It is our duty to offer everything, everyone is our duty to offer everyone the possibility of attaining eternal life. And can I just, just, just transition in, in conclusion from our question of the missions of charity to our mission at the Institute of Catholic Culture? Because you may say, Father Hezekiah, I can't go out on the street and be preaching the word. I can't go record a one-hour Bible study and all these things like the ICC does or teach like Father Scalia or, okay, but we're one body. And you can certainly participate in a real way. And I don't mean just by shelling out bucks. I mean, really participate. Yes, financially, critically important because I, 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 we have to provide for the needs of our teachers and our staff to make all of this happen. But, but in doing this, in presenting what I have and giving it to this work, and we can co conclude with the apostles, by the way, um, uh, I, I'm out there in this ministry, preaching and teaching through my support of it. Yes. And I had to go back to the apostles because yes, while they, while they had prioritized God, you know, allowed them then to properly love their father and mother. And Jesus didn't call the apostles to abandon their lives, but to bring their lives to the ministry of Christ. Go to Capernaum today. Beautiful sign at Capernaum. Home of Jesus. Yes? Well, where's the home of Jesus? It's Peter's home. What boat did they get into? It was, it was James and John's boat. Zebedee's boat. They brought their lives to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is what we're called to today. I ask you for your support for the Institute of Catholic Culture to make this ministry what it is, to bring yourself to it in a substantial way. So that we can proclaim clearly that Christ is risen from the dead. Death no longer has dominion over him. And therefore, those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, death no longer has dominion over us. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.